Patricia and I went to Disney World last week. We celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. We had a lot of fun, and um, we got to hear lots of orientations, right, from workers. Sometimes it was on a TV screen coming over a speaker. Sometimes it was a person. Before you ride, you need some orientation so it's safe, right? Well, this morning, we need some orientation before you read. Like before we read the scripture passage for the day, um, kind of put it in context a bit. Last week, Steve preached from Revelation chapter 12, introduces several chapters of this book that talk about an ongoing conflict between um, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. And, And that conflict is led by the dragon. That's the symbol used in chapter 12 for the devil, Satan. He attempts a frontal assault on God's people. Like, I will destroy the Messiah. I will destroy this child who's coming into the world to bring salvation before he can accomplish his mission. Well, that backfires and fails and doesn't work. And so chapter 12 ends with this statement that the dragon has gone off to make war on the rest of the offspring of this woman. The the woman symbolizes the people of God, Old Testament Israel, the church of the New Testament. And um, Satan's now redirected his anger toward us. And as part of his attempt now to make war on us, he recruits to himself powerful agents of evil. Two of them are described in chapter 13. We're going to look in detail at one, but they're You're presented through the symbolism of of beasts who arise out of the sea and the other one comes out of the earth. They seem a little unfamiliar to us, but um, readers of the Old Testament book of Daniel would go, "Mm, I I remember Daniel having a dream and seeing four beasts come up out of the sea. And, and, And they had a lot of the same characteristics of uh, the beasts that we're going to read about here. And in Daniel, those symbols represented powerful human rulers who claim a kind of greatness and glory that belongs only to God. So we're going to read some pretty frightening imagery this morning. It's important that we don't miss something in the middle of that kind of principles for understanding the book of Revelation. One is the Old Testament background is really important. Daniel, thank you. Another is there are lots of detailed descriptions of symbols that represent realities. So rather than thinking these descriptions are direct descriptions of reality, they describe symbols and, and those stand for some other reality. Thank you, Daniel, for helping us with that too. These symbols represent these powerful rulers who are claiming a kind of greatness and glory that doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God. Well, here's another one of those principles. When you're reading the book of Revelation, especially when you're reading some of the most confusing or disturbing or potentially frightening imagery, don't miss these subtle but very powerful promises of God's grace. The promise you're going to hear when Peter reads in just a moment is brought to us through the symbol of a lamb, a lamb who has power to protect people 
from the evil schemes of this dragon and his agents, these beasts. All right, so now we're ready. Peter, will you come read for us? Thank you. Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as to follow the beast and to worship the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast and to worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering halted and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the sins and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe, and people, and language, and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the word in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why should we take any of this seriously? It's okay if you think that when you read certain parts of the book of Revelation, right? Here's, here's one attempt to portray this beast that comes up out of the sea with all these horns and features like various animals. Daniel chapter 7, the, the beast he sees coming from the sea have exactly the same qualities. He sees one beast like a leopard and one like a bear and one like a lion and, and then another great beast. Well, here we have all those same features just combined into one big powerful symbol. Symbol. But when you see someone trying to turn it into an image, it can look a little silly. Right? And, and there can be a sense of you know, this part of the book of Revelation, with all this talk about dragons and beasts and spiritual warfare, you know what? We are secular Westerners. We don't take that kind of stuff seriously. We, even if we say we believe in the supernatural, it's only lip service. We don't really believe it, 
right? We, we, we're the kind of people who don't talk about stuff like this. But Jesus did. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray that we would not be led into temptation, but that God would deliver us from evil. Now, I don't have time to prove it to you this morning, but the best translation for that phrase is deliver us from the evil one, not from evil in the abstract. But Jesus is saying, when every day when you pray for your daily bread, pray also about this spiritual battle because the evil one, the enemy, Satan, the adversary, the accuser of God's people, wants wants you to not survive that time of temptation I'm teaching you to pray about. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Every day, pray for God to deliver his people from Satan and his evil allies. That's what Jesus teaches us. We should take all of this seriously because Jesus did, and he wants us to. So, in order to understand that daily, ongoing spiritual battle better, I want us to look at three features of the imagery of Revelation chapter 13. The first is, well, let's start, let's start in the, with the good news, the lamb. Then we'll look at the beast, and then we'll look more deeply into this image of having an ear to hear. The lamb. The lamb is the rightful ruler over the whole universe, Jesus Christ. Um, Everything about this description of this great beast coming out of the sea says he's an imposter, right? He's an imposter trying to take our focus off of Jesus, who is the real deal, right? Even down to the fact of, of, of being mortally wounded, right? But then kind of coming back from the dead, does that remind you of anyone, <laughs> right? Here's this powerful agent given authority by someone else to rule on the earth and taking authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. That's what verse 7 says, right? That this beast, symbol for someone or something, that takes authority over, well, we already read back in the early chapters of Revelation, Jesus Christ is the Lamb, and He is the one who has authority and has redeemed people from from every tribe and people and language and nation. This is an imposter. Ten diadems on its horns, verse 1 says. Diadem is a, it's a word for crown, but it, it, it's not like a, it's a word that represents ultimate authority to rule over a region. And um, in Revelation chapter 19, we're told that Jesus wears many diadems on his head. This beast might claim to have God's glory and greatness and, and might claim to have authority over the whole world and over people from every nation, But he's an imposter. He's a substitute. He's an imitation for the real thing. Jesus is the rightful ruler over the whole universe. And he is the lamb who was slain. So that everybody who worships him could have life. Verse 8 says this. 
that all who dwell on the earth will worship this beast. Well, except for those who don't worship this beast. (laughs) Because there are some whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And they won't worship this beast. Now, who is this beast and what does the beast symbolize? We'll get there. Don't worry. (laughs) But the point here is Jesus has subjected himself to death. He has sacrificed himself in order to purchase out of all those who dwell on earth who without his mercy and grace would be falling right in along with everyone else to worship this beast and instead worship the lamb. The text says from the ESV, that uh, some people's names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. If you read this sentence in Greek, though, that phrase, before the foundation of the world, comes at the very end. And I'm convinced, as if, if you look at the King James translation or the NIV, that the thing that happened before the foundation of the world was not the writing, but the slaying. In other words, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus died in, within history and within time, and, and like in about the year 33 A.D., and that wasn't before the foundation of the world. The point would be that before the world was even created, Jesus said, I will die to redeem anyone who will put their trust in me. That that purpose and that plan existed before there was time. And therefore, if you are redeemed by the work of Jesus, if your name is written in his book of life, then nothing can take your name out of it. I don't know if you get tired. I don't know if your soul gets tired. But I do, and mine is. I think pandemics can do that to people, right? And so I've been reading because my, my, my soul is, is, is like a little shriveled and, and needs some new life, some renewal, some revival. So I've been reading a series of books about revival. Dangerous. I'm just warning you ahead of time. One of them has a, a, a lecture by a Scottish pastor from the 1800s named John Bonar, and he's talking about what happened before the creation of the world as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are planning the work of redemption. And he says, he says this, that before the world was created, the Father chose a people And he gave them as a gift to his son. He gifted them to the son. And the son accepted them. And at this point, the son hasn't agreed to cleanse them, to die for them. So at this point, they are still, Bonar's words, guilty and polluted and ruined. And Jesus said, yes, I will redeem them by my precious blood. He didn't look at us in our 
cleansed, renewed state and say, yeah, I'll be happy to die for for them because they're so good, they're so pure. Before the world was created, Jesus, the rightful ruler of everything, said, I know how impure you are, and I will be slain for you anyway. I know everything that is wrong with you, and I will lay down my life for you anyway. I know every weakness you have better than you do. I know the things about you that you don't even have the courage to admit yet. I'll put your name in my book of life. And Bonar goes on to say, against such love the gates of hell shall not prevail. The impact of the Lamb's life and death and resurrection is so powerful that nothing can remove your name from his book of life if you worship him, if your trust is in him. Don't miss that. One little detail from 10 verses about this frightening beast. The beast doesn't have the power because he's just an imposter. So now we're ready to talk about the beast. It's a symbol. We know that because we have help from the Old Testament. The book of Daniel uses similar symbols. So we know that whatever this symbol represents, it's not something that happened only once in human history because Daniel could have dreams and visions about it hundreds of years before Jesus was born, hundreds of years before the book of Revelation was written. So here's, here's John seeing these visions and saying, you know that thing that was happening in Daniel's day? It's still happening. It's not just a once and done thing. And it's not just an only in the future thing. So whatever Revelation 13 is about, it's not just about something that's going to happen later. Some people read the book of Revelation that way, like it's all about the future. Well, it is about the future, but it's also about the past. It's about all of God's work in the world, past, present, and future. Daniel helps us in that way. Well, it's a symbol. It represents a reality. What reality does it represent? I was a seminary professor, and before that, I was a philosophy major, so I don't do simple answers. Sorry. So if you're looking for a, hmm, it represents Russia. It represents the oil cartels. It represents the Democrats. No, no, it represents MAGA. Nope. Not going to give you that simple answer. Three-part answer. What does this beast represent, symbolize? Powerful human rulers and societies claim for themselves greatness and glory that belong to God. When they do that, they become, maybe unknowingly, but they become agents of of Satan's counterfeit kingdom. And this has been happening since the world has existed. Powerful leaders, rulers, organizations, systems, societies, civilizations say, we'll build a tower and we'll go all the way to heaven. We don't need God. 
God is dead. We don't need him. We are God. Worship us. That's been happening. That's part two of the answer. So part one is this beast represents, as it did in Daniel's day, as it did in the first century, as it continues to today in the 21st century, this reality that powerful human rulers and societies like to claim for themselves a level of greatness and glory that no human being actually has. That belongs only to God. This pattern has persisted throughout the history of God's work in the world. This is why Daniel can dream about it. And in his dream, he sees symbols that stand for ancient empires, Assyria and Babylon, and eventually the Medo-Persians. And then Daniel starts looking into the future in his visions, and he sees that, that the kingdom of Greece is going to arise, and it's going to be fragmented into four kingdoms after Alexander the Great dies, and, and then this terrible beastly ruler is going to arise and persecute God's people. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He lived about 150 years before Jesus. Which one was the beast? Was it Assyria? Was it Babylon? Was it Greece? Was it Antiochus in Syria? Was it Rome in John's day in the first century? Yes, 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 and yes. This pattern has been repeating itself over and over and over again. That's why Revelation 11 could, could say Jesus died in Egypt. No, Jesus died in Jerusalem. The point is Egypt under Pharaoh persecuted God's people. This was happening in the days of Moses. And it's happening again in the days of John's readers in the first century. And it's happening again in our day. Why? Because this pattern is persistent across all of human history. We're going to get to Revelation 17 in a few weeks. And you'll see this symbol, now not a beast, but a city, Babylon, standing in for this reality that no matter where you look in human history, there are human leaders and societies saying, we are all that. The greatness and the glory rest with us. Which is coincidentally why I think in nearly every century somebody says, we have identified the Antichrist. Right? Well, because of this third part to our complex answer, what does this beast stand for? He stands for a principle and a person. This principle of powerful human beings and states and societies claiming to be God substitutes. That principle is part of the fallen human world. It expresses itself in every century, in every geography, but it will express itself in a final climactic form just before the return of Jesus. In a leader called the Antichrist, I don't know anything else about that leader as I study Scripture, than what Scripture tells me. Scripture tells me there's principle and person married together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says this, Many antichrists have come into the world, and then it says, but the antichrist is yet to come. There's a principle at work, many antichrists, and there's a person coming, the antichrist. The apostle Paul says the same thing, he uses different vocabulary, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The man of lawlessness will come in the future, Jesus will overthrow him by the breath of his mouth, but the, the principle of lawlessness is already at work. 
Now, what's, what's lying back of this is, is what we might call Satan as a parasite. Can't create anything. He's a created uh, being. He's a fallen angel. He's not God the creator. He can't have any new ideas. <laughs> he has to work with what God has given us, just like we do. We can't create anything new. Only God can do that. So there's a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in Revelation, we have what is often called the unholy trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, and a false prophet. That's the second beast in Revelation 13, the one we're not going to look at today. And they're symbolized with, you know, Satan symbol is a dragon, chapter 12. This beast from the sea symbolizes the Antichrist. The beast from the earth is this false prophet within this unholy trinity. And so in the same way, in the same way that, that God had a powerful climactic leader that he authorized to bring redemption into the world, his own son, the Christ, the Messiah. So Satan goes, I'm going to rip off that idea. And I'm going to find somebody to authorize, to be this final climactic bringer of chaos and evil into the world. Now, did God wait until the birth of Jesus to start working redemption in the world? No. There was this kind of principle of grace and salvation at work even before the person of the Redeemer came. Similarly here with this unholy trinity. This principle of, of resisting God's goodness has been at work in the world since for, well, since Genesis chapter 3. And a climactic embodiment of that will come. And a person the New Testament calls the Antichrist. So is this about the future or the present? Yes. All right, but we're secular people who don't believe in stuff like this. What would that look like in our day? <laughs> Can I talk briefly about four ways that this beast tempts us to write our name in his book. The first would be the most extreme form, would be where a human ruler or society says, I am your God, worship me. We're familiar with reading about that in the scriptures, kind of the ancient world, but we're like, that doesn't happen in our world, does it? Oh yeah, it does. Give several examples. I'll just mention one right now, but um, there's an ideology in North Korea called Juche, which essentially is a, an ideology of secularism. It says people don't need to depend on spiritual ideas because if they work together, they can achieve all of their goals without supernatural resources. The society replaces God. Your participation in the society meets all the needs that worshiping and following a supernatural being would meet. We have become your God. This is not just a feature of the ancient world. This is a feature of the fallen human world in every era. 
Another form this might take would be if the, if the beast says, not worship me, I'm your God, but says, I will destroy you if you keep worshiping your God. I'm not claiming to be your God, but I'm telling you that if you keep worshiping your God, I will make your life a living hell. I may even end your life. This, this is when political and economic and social power is used to persecute God's people. If you want to know what that looks like in our world, let me recommend to you a, a resource called Voice of the Martyrs. You can go to their website. You can request a, um, you, can, you can view stories there, videos, uh, read articles. You can request a, a monthly magazine that tells you what it looks like around the world right now for followers of Jesus to, um, to be tempted every day to compromise their faith in Christ just to avoid persecution. Well, here's a third form this takes, a little more subtle. Adjust your commitment to Jesus to align with my priorities. I am the state. I am the ruler. I am the power. We are the party. We are the society. We are the civilization. Our priorities are the best. And Christians, you need to adjust your commitment to Jesus. okay for you to keep worshiping him. But you just need to knock off the edges where Jesus doesn't line up with our priorities. A little more subtle, just as deadly and dangerous. In Chicago, there is a Museum of Science and Industry. There's a display there of a German U-boat from World War II, this deadly submarine, the Wolves of the Sea, they were called. They just struck terror into my grandfather. I heard stories about this. You walk around a corner to see this display, and you are looking right down the torpedo tubes of this massive U-boat. It's pretty terrifying. Darkly lit. But the scariest thing I saw in all that display was a New Testament produced by the Nazi regime, complete with swastika on the cover, for their Christian soldiers. Right? Okay for you to keep worshiping Jesus, but you're going to need to adjust the priorities of Christ to fit the priorities of the state. That was just a few decades ago. This is our world. John said, Many antichrists have come, the antichrist is yet to come. How might we experience this temptation today in a way that's even more subtle? I call it the the, isn't that better mentality. You know, when this beast would sidle up alongside us and say, now now isn't that better? See how, how zeal for Jesus has been replaced by zeal for my causes. Isn't that better? I'm not threatening to kill you. I'm not claiming to be your God. But, but just notice how, how much better life is now that, that you transferred all that zeal for religion and Jesus to zeal for politics and causes. The Economist magazine in March of 2021 had an article called Religious Fervor is Migrating into Politics. 
And it goes into detail showing how many Americans who claim to be evangelical Christians rarely attend church. Show me a committed follower of Jesus who doesn't like to be with other followers of Jesus on a regular basis. And I will say, I don't think that person's a Christian. And yet, evangelical Christians getting involved in politics as activists, Christian in name only, that fervor for Christ is being shifted over to other causes. They also show in this article that many Christian nationalists in Europe are atheists. Christian nationalism is just a label they use to advance a social and political agenda. They've shifted all their allegiance to supernatural savior to a party? This can happen to any of us. The article goes on to show that progressive and liberal folks in the West who are most likely to say, I'm secular, I don't have serious religious commitments, are also the most likely to to be heavy-handed in their moralizing like Puritans of old. The, the article actually uses that language. So with all the fervor of religious fundamentalists, there's people who say we don't even really believe in God, have transferred all the passion that's meant to go toward the God who made us and redeemed us through his son. And all of that passion is now being applied in another arena. The beast is having his way when that happens. Not just in North Korea, where the state says, we have replaced God, but in this more subtle way, where the beast comes alongside and says, now isn't that better? It's not better. Have ears to hear. It's not better. It's not better to substitute a cause in the place of Christ. It is never better to do that. And, and you know what, Mr. Beast? Your priorities are not better than those of Jesus. I will not adjust my Bible to be a better Nazi soldier. Your priorities are not better. And you know what? You cannot destroy me. I will keep worshiping my God. And you may kill me, but you cannot destroy me. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And his life is indestructible. So no matter what comes next for me, you cannot destroy me. I don't have to fear you. You will never be a replacement for my God. I see through your lies. I worship the Lamb. I'm not interested in a substitute or an imposter or a version of Jesus that's been scaled down. If you love the Lamb, John says, this is a time for endurance and faith. Because this temptation to write our names in the book of the beast is going to be constant, continual. We have to endure in our love for Christ. What did the beast ever do for us? Was he slain before the foundation of the world for you? 
No. If you don't yet love the Lamb, He is inviting you to give your heart to Him. Don't give it to a cause. Don't give it to a power. Don't give it to a state or a society or a civilization. Don't give it to a nation. Give it to the Lamb. A leader named Francis Schaeffer often said something like this or variations on it. If you demand of anyone perfection or nothing, you will always get the nothing. If you try to hang on someone more weight than they were meant to bear, it will always lead to disappointment. And this tendency of of human powers to say, we can replace God the glory that belongs to him, we've got it. The greatness that belongs to him, we possess it. Trust us more than you trust him. Trust us alongside him. Trust us in, in, in place of him. If you try to hang all the weight that God is meant to bear in your soul on any human power, you will get nothing in return. It wasn't meant to bear that weight. But if you hang all of that weight on the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, he can hold it because he is perfection. If you demand of anyone perfection or nothing, you will always get the nothing unless that someone is Christ. When you hang everything you are and everything you have and everything you want on Jesus, you will get in return everything. Let's open our ears to hear. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for being honest with us. Thank you for being graphic about it and using images that stir our imagination. They may even confuse our minds. They may strike some fear in our hearts. Thank you for captivating us and for letting us know that um, for all the threatening power of the beast, real safety is found in a lamb. And you are that lamb. May our love be for you. May our faith be in you. Whether that faith is new today or being renewed and revived and reawakened today, make it happen by your power, we pray. Amen.